Bibles to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. This morning we're going to look at the plot to kill Paul. The plot to kill Paul. We start this morning's message with Paul facing very hostile Jewish people again. And earlier he had been attacked in the temple grounds by a Jewish mob and he was callously beaten. And the only thing that saved Paul's life was the Roman soldiers who came to his rescue. The commander of the Roman soldiers, Claudius Lysias, uh, in, uh, in control of the forces in Jerusalem, he tried, but they, they weren't able to find out what Paul had done. So he allowed Paul to talk to the angry crowd from the steps of the Fort Antonia. But when Paul told them that God sent him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, they went nuts. They said, that's it, we don't want to hear anymore. And that caused a riot to break out all over again. So the commanders then decided to use a heartless way of trying to get information out of Paul. It was through scourging, whipping, to get him to confess what was going on. But when they found out Paul was a Roman citizen, that stopped the whole procedure because it was against Roman law to examine a Roman citizen in that way. So let's begin in chapter 23 with verses 1 and 2. And it says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. The first thing that Paul did when he was standing in front of the leaders of the Sanhedrin, it says he was looking earnestly at the council. That means he was, it mean, the, the word uh, earnestly, looking earnestly means to gaze upon, to fix one's eyes on or to stare. So he was, he was checking him out. He was sizing him up. He was looking over the crowd. And then he said, <clears throat> I stand before you with a clear conscience. He says, I have lived before God doing my duty with a perfectly good conscience until this very day. That, that means up, into, uh, up, until today, up and, unto today. Not that he quit that day, but he says, even to this very day, this moment, I have continually lived uh, a clean conscience, true and loyal Jew. In Paul's mind, even the things he had done when he was persecuting the church were done in good conscience. Because, you see, he had done them ignorantly. A perfect example of the truth here that conscience is a good motivation. We've all heard the expression, let your conscience be your guide. All right, but it can be a lousy guide at times. The Holy Spirit's work is to convict, to bring the Word of God to work on the conscience, to stir it up <clears throat> and checking it so that it works properly. Without that, that is, without the, the, the guiding of the Holy Spirit, the conscience can lead people to do weird, th weird things, though we might think they're right. So Paul could say that he had lived in all good conscience. And then when the high priest heard that, knowing Paul's background as a Christian, he was beside himself, telling, you know, saying basically, Paul, you know, you're claiming to be a Christian and, and you, you walked away from the, from, from the law and, and, and being a good Jew. And, and so when Ananias heard that, it just, it just 
he just got angry. He said, you're kidding me, Paul. You got the nerve to say you're living in good conscience and here you are proclaiming the name of Christ and leaving, you know, the, the Jewish law. And when he heard that, he, 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 he ordered somebody to, to, to smack Paul in the mouth. Paul's simple testimony about his integrity was all it took to get the Sanhedrin and especially the high priest Ananias, who was the presiding officer in charge of the council, it, it aggravated him. They hated Paul. They hated the gospel. They hated Jesus. And they showed it very quickly. Look at verse 3. Then Paul said to him, that is the high priest, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? When that happened, when that person hit Paul in the mouth, it really angered him. He looked at Ananias, the Jewish official, with anger, and he rebuked him for taking advantage of his position and abusing a prisoner contrary to the Jewish law. The Jewish law would protect the right of a person that was accused. And here Ananias ordered this guy to hit Paul. Paul you know, retorted back to him. He called him a whitewashed wall. He said to Ananias, you whitewashed wall. Now Jesus said in Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs and which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Ananias looked at himself as being qualified to judge. Paul, according to the law, all right, but, but Ananias didn't keep the law. So that made the court a very hypocritical court, verses 4 and 5. And those, who stood by, and those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? They said this to Paul. Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Some wonder why or how to justify Paul's strong words with what he wrote in Corinthians or to the Corinthians, when he said, when we are reviled, we bless. So he wrote to the Corinthians, when we revile, we, re we bless. And yet when Paul, I'm sorry, when Ananias, you know, called, uh, it slapped Paul, he, he got angry. And he called him, you whitewashed wall. Now, you know, he, he, he didn't bless in that situation. And so people wonder, how, how does Paul justify doing what he did when he said, when we're reviled, we bless. Well, it happened to Jesus too. Now, a good answer might be, well, Paul wasn't Jesus. Jesus was sinless. Paul wasn't. Paul was godly, but he was still a sinner. Now, this was one of those times when maybe his flesh got the best of him. And, and I think we could all attest to a time when maybe our flesh has gotten the best of us and we didn't act accordingly. But here's the thing, as soon as Paul had all of the facts, because he was a godly man and a humble man, he apologized right away. And he admitted his mistake, and he quoted from Exodus 22, verse 28, as his reason for doing so. Because you weren't supposed to speak, you know, to, uh, to an official, to a ruler in that way. He, like I said, he quoted the passage to show his respect for and submission to the word of God. 
Paul reacted here like a mature Christian. He saw his sin in light of God's holiness. He wasn't looking at the wrong that was done to him by the high priest. He's looking at how he sinned in the light of God's holiness. Paul knew that he was wrong, but at the same time, what Ananias did was no excuse for his bad behavior. And when Paul realized he had sinned, he confessed his sin immediately and he submitted to the authority of the Scripture. And Christians who deal with sin in their lives like Paul did, they will save themselves a lot of chastisement. And it seems strange that Paul couldn't recognize that he was the high priest. Because he tells them, he says, hey, I wasn't aware, brethren, he was the high priest. Maybe it was because of, because of his poor eyesight. Some pay, say that Paul was so angry that, that he didn't stop to think who he was talking to. And many times when we get angry and it overtakes us, we don't care who we're talking to. And we just, we just say what's, what's on our chest. Get it off our chest. And just, we just blurt it out. Some think he spoke sarcastically to Ananias since Ananias didn't act like a high priest. So again, how should Paul have recognized you know, the high priest? So the simplest, most honest explanation would probably be to take Paul's words at face value. I didn't know it was him, and therefore I apologize. Since he didn't visit uh, Jerusalem, or hadn't visited Jerusalem in the recent years, maybe he might not have known that Ananias was the high priest. On top of that, this wasn't a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin. It was an informal meeting somewhere outside Fort Antonio, which supports this view that, you know, Paul didn't recognize him. Paul would have recognized the high priest if he had been wearing his high priestly garments and sitting in his official seat. But nonetheless, whatever Paul's reason was for not recognizing the high priest, he didn't make excuses. He admitted his mistake. He took responsibility for what he said. This is the kind of humble, non-defensive attitude that is the mark of a spiritual believer. Verse 6. But when Paul received that one part, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am being judged. He says, I'm a Pharisee. He says, I'm a son of a Pharisee. He says, now I'm being judged because I believe in the resurrection. Paul's nerves were no doubt on edge. Paul had been attacked by an angry mob. He'd been threatened with a brutal whipping by the Romans. And now he's being bullied by the high priest. So it was pretty clear that Paul, that, that, that he probably wasn't going to get a fair trial in court especially led by the high priest Ananias. You know, if Paul said and admitted, hey, I'm a Christian, and he defended himself for being a Christian, he probably wouldn't have gotten a fair trial on top of that. He probably would have just got shot down. They wouldn't have listened to him. Ananias was part of the Sadducees. They were the liberals of their day. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits or the resurrection. Now, the Pharisees, of whom Paul was, did believe in those things. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central truth of Christianity. Paul said that, that, that this is what I believe in. He says, and this is what I preach. You know, I preach truth. Christians and Pharisees pretty much believed in resurrection, but not Sadducees. 
They were the conservative fundamentalists, that is, the Pharisees. They took the Scripture literally. And so there was quite a divide between the two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Paul knew this. He used this division to help his position by pointing out that he was being judged just because he believed in the resurrection of the dead. Verses 7 through 9. And he goes on to say, And when he had said this, notice, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Because Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So this instantly broke up the hearing. This division, because it started an argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, Paul was very clever by using this tactic. Paul divided his enemy. And surprisingly, the Pharisees defended Paul, who was again a fellow Pharisee. Verse 10. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, Claudius Lysias, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, he commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Paul was in more danger by, uh, with the unbelieving Jews than he was in a Roman prison. So he was taken to the army barracks again at the Antonia Fortress. Verse 11. But the following night... The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Here Paul was alone in his jail cell. He has been physically and mentally beaten, discouraged. He's not sure about his future. He's not sure about what's going to happen to him in his ministry. But on that night... That night, after the failed hearing with the Sanhedrin, he says the Lord stood by him. Just like the Lord had done many times before in times of need. We see it in chapter 18, chapter 22 of the book of Acts. The Lord appeared in, his, in, in person to his servant. And the Lord started by comforting Paul, encouraging Paul to take courage. God graciously comforts his bummed out servants. So much so that Scripture calls him the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.4-5, God comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Just as, much, just as many you know, uh, afflictions that we have, we also have just as much comfort through Christ to take care of those afflictions. Now the words comfort or consolation, they're repeated 10 times in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. But here's something that's important for us to keep in mind. When we think of God's comfort, we mustn't think of God's comfort in terms of sympathy, that is pity. Because a lot of times when, when, when we're going through struggles and people mess with us and people hurt our feelings, we, we, we start to pity ourselves. God doesn't say, oh, you poor thing. 
Because sympathy can make us weak instead of strengthening us. God doesn't pat us on the head and give us a lollipop or a toy to distract our attention from our troubles. He puts strength into our hearts so that we can face our trials and get victory over them. That's the purpose of our trials, not to be knocked down by them and, and, and you know, set aside by them. We're to get victory over them. Our English word comfort comes from two Latin words meaning with strength. The Greek word means to come alongside and help. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's the same word used for the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he will come alongside you. He will be your comforter. You see, God can encourage us by his word and through his spirit. There's a quote by Alexander McLaren. It's in the bulletin. He said, with the Holy Spirit in your heart and the scriptures in your hand, you have all that you need. Beautiful. God can encourage us by His Word and through His Holy Spirit. But sometimes, God uses other believers to, to give us the encouragement that we need. That's why we, we are to have fellowship with one another, have a relationship with one another, that we can lift one another's burdens, that we can rejoice with those who rejoice and sorrow with those who sorrow. It doubles our rejoicing and it cuts our sorrow in half. In Acts 4.36, you know, we, we read... Again, Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. How great it would be if all of us had that nickname, if we could all be called Barnabas, that we were all encouragers. Because when you're discouraged because of difficult circumstances or because of what people say or do to you, it's easy to look at yourself. It's easy to look inward and to look at your feelings, to focus on the problems around you rather than on yourself. Because sometimes ministry doesn't change. That means we have to. The thing that we have to do is look by faith to the Lord Jesus and realize all that God is to us. <clears throat> the psalmist said in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, he said, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? In other words, does my help come from the mountains? He said, no, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Robert C. Chapman said this, when a man's chief business is to serve and please the Lord, all his circumstances become his servants. You know, if we didn't have any problems, how could we know? How would we know that God could solve them? A few years after Paul got saved, when his life was in danger in Jerusalem, Jesus appeared to him in the temple. And Jesus told him what to do in Acts chapter 22. When Paul was discouraged in Corinth and he thought about going somewhere else, Jesus appeared to him and said, hey, Paul, stay there. Stay where you are. Acts chapter 18. Now, here when Paul was definitely at a low point in his ministry, Jesus appeared to him again to encourage him and to instruct him. Later on, Paul would receive encouragement during the storm in Acts chapter 27 on his way to Malta. And during his trial in Rome, God will appear to him again. It's good to remember Jesus' words, Lo, I am with you always. What a great assurance for every situation we encounter. The Lord's message to Paul here was one of courage. He said, Paul, be of good cheer, which simply means take courage. Jesus often spoke these words during his earthly ministry. He said, I have overcome the world. He spoke these words to the man with palsy in Matthew chapter 9. 
He spoke these words to the woman who suffered with the hemorrhaging in Matthew chapter 9. He spoke these words that I have overcome. He spoke to them to the, to the disciples in the storm and, and, and also repeated them in the upper room. Be of good cheer. And as God's people, we can always take courage when we're going through difficult times because the Lord is with us and He will see us through. And the key word is through. God does not say, hey, well, you know what? Let's detour this problem. You know what? Let's skirt around it. No, He says, we're going through it. Psalmist said in Psalm 66.6, He turned the sea into dry land and they went through the river. He didn't say, hey, let's look for another way around. Let's, Let's take a detour. No, He said, we are going through this river. In Psalm 66, 12, it says, We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. We read in Psalm 84, 6 through 7, And as they passed through the valley of Baca, which means weeping, as they passed through the valley of weeping, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Psalm 106, 9, the psalmist said he rebuked the Red Sea also and dried it up so that so he led them through the depths as through the wilderness over and over and over again. He says he leads us through. Not many men could have taken what Paul went through. Not many could have stomached all the pressures and the people and the circumstances that messed with Paul. The things that he faced in his ministry. I think most people would have quit the ministry and many do. They allow the circumstances to to overload them, to weigh them down. And since God has so generously given us this ministry, we are not about to throw up our hands and walk off of the job just because we run into hard times once in a while. If we had, you know, if Paul hadn't had a special relationship with Jesus Christ, he never would have survived the ministry. And that's what it takes, an intimate special relationship with jesus christ jesus said those who uh, those who who endure to the end shall be saved you know it's not it's not how far we've gone it's it's going to the finish line it's not what great start we got off to but it did we cross the finish line and that's the key you know paul wanted to finish the finish line and he did he says i kept the fate i fought the good fight I did what God had called me to do. I I finished it all. And for sure, Paul experienced many high points in his ministry. Paul saw the power of the Holy Spirit work. He saw healing. He saw revivals. He, 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 He experienced many good times of rejoicing, but there were also just as many, many times of despair and discouragement. In his letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, Paul talked about some of the pressures he experienced. Listen. He said, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened, notice, beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. This is emphasizing the the sufferings that Paul experienced there. There This was no small small, uh, suffering on Paul's part. Paul says, hey, the suffering was more than, than I had natural strength to deal with. He said, the suffering I went through, it it was more than my natural strength to endure. The the suffering, he said, was was life-threatening. No man could have stood up under those birds without God's help. While Satan attacks to destroy, God uses the attacks to build you up in the faith. 
you know, God uses them for his glory and for our good. Paul's suffering was to lessen his trust in himself and to increase his trust in God. You know, it's interesting here in our text, the first words from the Lord to Paul are, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. And maybe you're going through a dark time right now in your life. And maybe you are feeling the heavy pressures coming down on you, crushing you on every side. John Calvin said, hard times should never make us hardened people and adversity should never make us abrasive. This is when we need to have that sense of the Lord's presence with us. It's usually in the dark times and in the fire that we become most aware of God and that's when He really reveals Himself to us. Because He's the one who can, who can deliver us. He's the one who can see us through. You see, he puts, us, he puts us back on our feet again. He gets, us get, he gets us going again. And even as the Lord stood by Paul in the dark hours of his life, you can be sure that the Lord will stand by you in the dark hours of your life as well. God meets Paul in the darkness here. And he brings him strength and he brings him the encouragement that he needed so much. Paul has been sitting there in that jail cell thinking, I messed up. Thinking he failed. He failed in the thing that he wanted to do the most. And he was probably wondering if his ministry was over now or should I quit? But God assures him, Paul, you're not done with. You see, the Lord, here's the neat thing. The Lord didn't see Paul as a failure. The only thing God asked Paul to do was witness of him. Even though he, there, was a, there were riots and imprisonments and almost beaten and, and all this, it may have looked like Paul failed, but did he preach the gospel? Yeah, and all that was the result of preaching the gospel. Paul hadn't failed. Paul was a witness of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul did. He witnessed. You see, here's the thing. The Lord doesn't require you or I to to see people come to Christ, win them to Christ. He He doesn't, again, require us to win people to Jesus Christ. He doesn't require us to be successful. Even though, hey, that's a great experience. When we share the gospel with somebody and we lead them to the Lord, man, it is a, that is a great experience. Great experience. But the Lord does not require us to win souls. He only requires, us, requires that we witness. When we stand before him in heaven, he's going to look for faithfulness. He's not going to say, well, how many people did you lead to the Lord? You know, he's not going to ask you that. He's not going to say, hey, how big was the church? You know how, how, you know, how many churches did you start? He's not going to ask me any of that. He's going to say, did you preach my word? That's all he's going to care about. Did you preach my word? That's what I'm going to be held accountable for. We're going to be held accountable for just for, for being witnesses of Jesus Christ. Not because, you know, not, hey, Joe, how come there was not that, you know, thousands and thousands? Because all churches are different. 
based on, on, on many variables. The man with 10,000 in the congregation and the man with 100 con con uh, people in the congregation, they're going to stand before God and they're going to be judged based on the one thing. Did you preach my word? Because the result of the witnessing of Jesus Christ is totally in his hands. He brings the increase. We see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 47. It says, The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to the church. It didn't say the disciples added to the church. It didn't say that, that, that the people be, that added to the church. It said the Lord added to the church. I can't change a person's heart. You can't change a person's heart. I can tell the person about what Jesus has done for me. I can tell them what Jesus will do for them if they receive him. But accepting him is totally up to them. We need to know this. We need to understand this. Because when we witness to somebody and, we, and they reject our, the, the witness that we share, they're not rejecting me. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. Paul had testified of Jesus. Paul was faithful even though there were riots and even though they wanted to kill him, uh, Jesus, uh, Paul had done what he was called to do. He was faithful. And that's all that God required of him. We read that in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what it says. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Notice, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Period. It doesn't say one to, is to be found faithful, eloquent, brilliant, successful, educated. No. Were you faithful? We are to be found faithful. And the Lord assured Paul of the future. Paul was given a brand new assignment. He's, he's to take the gospel to Rome. Even though he's still sitting in prison. You see, he could have been sitting there, I'm done. I guess God's through with me. No. He was given a new assignment in prison. He said, Paul, you're going to take the gospel of Rome. Even though he's still sitting in that prison, Paul knows he's in the center of God's will. And many times when we go through difficult times and things don't work the way they, we want them to or we thought they'd turn out, we might think, well, I'm not, I must not be in the will of God. Everything can be falling down around you. You can still be smack in the middle of God's will. The three friends of Daniel, when they were thrown in the fiery furnace, hey, they were in the middle of God's will, in the fiery furnace. The will of God leads to a cross. Jesus said, if any man desires to follow after me, let him pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Pick up his cross and follow me. The will of God often leads to a cross. Now, persecution is not a sign that you're out of God's will. It may well be a good sign that you're directly in the center of God's will. But again, that doesn't mean that the road won't be difficult. In fact, hardships for Paul started the very next day. Notice verses 12 through 15. And when it was day, notice, here it is, the next day after Jesus told him, be of good cheer, it was the next day it says, some of the Jews got together, banded together, and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Good morning, Paul. Verse 13. 
Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will not eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he brought, be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So the fanatical believing Jew, unbelieving Jews hated Paul. They hated him so much that the next morning they made a plan and, made, and took an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed him. The involvement of the chief priests and the elders in this plot shows their lack of, le, of a legitimate case. They really didn't have a legitimate reason to do what they were doing to Paul. So they made it up. They, wanted, they were just going to kill him. That's, this shows their corrupt characters. Verses 16 through 22. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me, uh, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. Verse 22, so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. Somehow, Paul's nephew gets wind of this plot to kill Paul. And he was able to get to the barracks to tell Paul about this plot and then to the commander. And when the commander heard about the plan, he tells Paul's nephew, don't tell anybody that you've told me about this plan. Verse 23 and 24. And he called for two centurions, that is the, the commander, he calls for two centurions saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea. So a total of 470 soldiers to go to Caesarea at the third night or 9 o'clock p.m. and provide mounts to set, on, to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. The commander decided to take Paul away from his danger. So he did everything possible to make Paul's escape totally safe. First, he sent 470 men to escort Paul. Secondly, they did it at night. They started the journey at 9 p.m. Also, they went to Caesarea, which be, would be a lot safer. It, it, you know, he wouldn't be as vulnerable to a riot as he was in Jerusalem. This is the third time Paul left a city secretly at night. The other two were Damascus and, uh, in chapter 9 and, and Thessalonica in chapter 17, verse 25 through 30. He wrote a letter. So now the, now the, the commander has to write this letter to, to Felix. Um, so it says, He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, from Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized, speaking of Paul, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by him. Coming with the troops, notice, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. 
And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the council. He didn't say I was going to whip him to find out what was going on. I just, you know, I have to talk to him. I just took him before the council. Verse 20, I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So when, like I said, a prisoner was sent to a superior, the subordinate officer, in this case Claudius Lysias, was required to go with the prisoner along with a, red, a, a written letter stating the problem. This letter from Claudius gives the basics of the case. Now the commander, he kind of bends the truth a little bit by saying he rescued Paul there in verse 7, which he didn't because he actually learned from a subordinate that Paul was a Roman citizen. He also happened to leave out the part, as I just said, that you know, he was going to whip him to get the information out of him. He said, no, I just turned him over to the council. The important thing about this letter is, though, that he says Paul was innocent. I could find nothing to accuse him of. Let's close with verses 31 through, 40, uh, 31 through 34. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Not only, again, this is God's providence. Not only was Paul protected by an escort for a king, 470 men escorted Paul. But he also wasn't put in a common prison. He was put in, he, he got to stay in the praetorium, which was the, para, the, the, the palace where the governor had his official headquarters. And when you study the things that happened in this chapter with Paul or to Paul, you can't help but be impressed with Paul's commitment to his calling. Remember back in, Acts, back in Acts chapter 20, he said, none of these things move me. You know, if ever a man dared to follow Jesus, no matter what happened, this was the man, Paul. Paul didn't look for the easy road. He didn't look for the easy way. He looked for the way that would honor the Lord the most and would win the lost. Paul was even willing to become a prisoner if that would further the work of the gospel. We also have to be impressed with the amazing, again, providence of God in taking care of Paul. 470 troops. He got to stay, stay in the palace, not in a prison cell, escorted, you know, to where he was going. So again, the hand of God taking care of his servant. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Charles Spurgeon said this, let us trust in God and be very courageous for the gospel and the Lord himself will screen us from all harm. God's people can afford to be courageous when it comes to doing the will of God. Why? Because they know that their Savior is dependable and will work out His perfect will in their life. Paul was by himself, but he wasn't alone. The Lord stood by him. His Lord was with him. 
So he had nothing to be afraid of, and neither do we. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. God, for your goodness to us, for your faithfulness, Lord. Father, we thank you that we have such a wonderful word that we can read and be encouraged, Lord. Warned and encouraged as well, God. We thank you so much for your love for us, God, how you take care of us, Lord, how you provide for us, Lord, how you strengthen us. God, how you tell us when to go, where to go, and when not to go. Father, help us to stay close to you, Father, in our relationship with you, God. Father, help us to, again, depend upon the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us into all truth, God. We thank you so much for all that you do for us, God. And Lord, we can never say enough thanks to you, Lord. But Lord, I pray that our heart would express our gratitude and we know that you can read hearts. Father, we thank you again. Father, we thank you for the offering that we're about to receive. We thank you again for your generosity. We thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.